I think every car company, like Mike was saying, is looking at Tesla and they're saying, oh my gosh, they control their entire vertical. They control all the parts. They control all the fixing. You want a software update? You have to pay us. You put an aftermarket part on your car, I won't give you the software. So I think they look at them enviously and say, man, my car company wasn't hundred years old. That's how I would reinvent myself. They're trying to race to all be Tesla. That's their goal. The Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of the Fight to Repair podcast. I'm your host, Paul Roberts. I'm the editor-in-chief at Fight to Repair Newsletter. In this episode of our podcast, we have a really great panel of experts to talk about one of the most important themes in the larger right to repair debate, the right to repair your automobile. Automobiles are the only category of product where a formal right to repair exists in the United States thanks to a law passed in 2012 by voters in Massachusetts. But that right is under threat after voters in Massachusetts expanded their 2012 law in November of 2020 to include access to telematics data, automakers challenged the law in federal court and have prevented its implementation for more than two years. A decision in that case is expected soon. In the meantime, the walls are closing in on owner and independent repair. Manufacturers like Tesla are increasingly following the lead of manufacturers like John Deere, using access to software and administrative features to stymie owner and independent repair and servicing of their vehicles and establishing de facto monopolies on repair and maintenance. Automakers are also employing so-called design patents on ordinary car parts like bumpers and side view mirrors to prevent aftermarket parts makers from offering lower cost replacements to car owners. Where do things go from here? In this episode of Fight to Repair podcast, we invited three people who are on the front lines of the fight to repair your car. They're Catherine Boland, the vice president of legislative affairs for their Motor and Equipment Manufacturers Association, Justin Resepka, the executive director of the Car Coalition, and Mike O'Neill, the president of Diamond Standard Parts, a supplier of aftermarket car parts. As premium subscribers, you get the benefit of hearing our full interview and check out the Fight to Repair website for a copy of the transcript of our conversation. Okay, so welcome back to another issue of the Fight to Repair podcast, formerly known as What the Fix. I'm Paul Roberts. I'm the host, editor of the Fight to Repair newsletter and founder of Secure Repairs. And we've got an amazing panel of people here today to talk about what I think is one of the most kind of poignant and important issues in the right to repair conversation, which is automobiles and cars, fixing our cars. And it's a really interesting topic. It's one of the areas where in the United States, we actually have something like a right to repair, but one that is, I think, increasingly under threat. And so we've got some folks here with us in the studio representing different parts of the kind of the car ecosystem um, who are here to talk to us about what, what's going on down the trenches. And I'm going to just start and ask them to say hi and introduce themselves. Michael O'Neill, why don't we start with you? Fine. I'm Michael O'Neill. I'm the president of Diamond Standard Parts, LLC. I've been in the bumper business for 58 years, from everything from recro bumpers to manufacturing, stamping manufacturing, automotive plating, distribution and logistics. I've been throughout the whole industry my whole life, basically. The things I want to cover, if you want me to start now, Paul, 
is... Michael, where are you, where are you based? I'm based in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, that's where our headquarters are for marketing and sales. And our manufacturing facilities are in the United States and Taiwan, both. So what I look at right now is they're the motor companies. And I'm going to stay with GM because they're the biggest thing on the table right now. What I see from all my studies is an intentional patent abuse. They're getting design patents for functional items they knew were primarily functional. Bumpers and other parts in a crash management safety system are totally and purely functional for safety and collateral damage. Due to concerns dictated by federal law, NHTSA, the IHS, in both low and high speed crash tests. Therefore, that part can't be substituted unless it's to the same like kind and quality of the design used, which the design is blocked by patents in the aftermarket. Further, if the design can be altered and still perform the same function, it is ornamental and patentable, which is just clearly not. Okay? So let me just paraphrase this by a GM advertising article that states, caption is, put your best front forward with OE bumpers, fascias, and grills. And the quote is, the front end of the vehicle may as well be called the business end. It is the most important part of the car cosmetically, but also plays a big role in the safety of the vehicle. Now, if that doesn't describe function, I don't know what does. Okay. OE, original equipment. Um, yeah. Okay, Justin, say hi to the audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and why you're here. Hey, Paul, thank you again for having me on. I'm really excited about today's conversation. So I'm Justin Rezepka, and I'm the executive director of the Consumer Access to Repair, or CAR Coalition, carcoalition.com. So we're a group of independent parts, manufacturers, distributors, repair companies, and parts distributors and insurance companies. And we were formed two and a half years ago to uh, reduce the rising cost of auto repair. We primarily are working here in Washington, D.C. at the federal level with Congress and policymakers. So we've got some legislation I want to talk to you about today. We're working with some of the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Transportation, another thing. Some of the members of the coalition are Mike at Diamond Standard, as well as LKQ, AutoZone, CarParts.com, Farmers Insurance, Geico, and Allstate. So it's a really well-rounded group from the beginning of the repair all the way to the end. And so thanks again for having me, Paul. That's great. And yeah, we're going to talk about some of the legislation that's up there on Capitol Hill, as well as in the States now as well. Catherine, how are you doing? I'm good, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Catherine Boland. I'm Vice President for Legislative Affairs at the Motor and Equipment Manufacturers Association. I'm here today on behalf of our aftermarket division, the Automotive Aftermarket Suppliers Association. And we're the association that represents aftermarket parts, components, and systems manufacturers. We're committed to ensuring that the millions of vehicles on the road today are safely, appropriately, and affordably maintained, repaired, and serviced to keep consumers on the road. And one of the things my aftermarket members are truly committed to is affordable options and supporting the independent aftermarket to ensure that consumers can keep repairing their vehicles. And I'm looking forward to an interesting conversation. It's really great having you all here. I guess what I'd start with for our audience, and this is the, the Fight to Repair podcast. These are folks who are focused on the repair issue. 
automobiles are really one of the few categories of products in the United States, North America, where something like a right to repair exists. I wondered, and Catherine, maybe you're the best one or Justin to delve into this. What is the state of the right to repair automobiles in the United States right now? Where does that right come from? And how healthy is that as we speak right now in November 2022? Happy to start and Justin, feel free and jump in if there's things you want to add. Voters in Massachusetts back 10, 12 years ago passed a referendum requiring OEMs to share repair information so consumers could get their vehicles repaired. That led to a nationwide MOU between, at the time, two of the large trade associations representing vehicle manufacturers and the Auto Care Association, a trade association we work closely with and have a number of joint members across the board. Uh, What it didn't address is telematics data, and it also didn't really provide an adequate way for consumers to raise concerns if they, consumers or repair shops, if they weren't, if the needs uh, and the requirements of that MOU were being met. However, cars since 2012, when that MOU was signed, have dramatically changed. We've gone from cars with uh, electronic uh, control units, ECUs, that only having a handful in the vehicle to dozens in a vehicle. So much more of that vehicle is computerized right now that the automakers are taking advantage of vehicle technology advancements, and we fully support those advancements, but making it harder and harder for consumers to get their vehicles repaired. In 2020, voters in Massachusetts went back to the polling places on election day and added telematics to to the requirement that has been held up by the trade association representing the automakers for over two years at this point. And we haven't been able to see any action because it's been delayed seven times by the judges or by the judge up there in Massachusetts. What's also happened in order to comply with the law, you've seen two automakers turn off their telematics systems in Massachusetts for vehicles registered there. So that means that consumers don't have access to some of the infotainment. They don't have access to some of the communications of that vehicle. They're not getting the vehicle they've paid for. Uh, So one of the things that we're looking at this as, we need a federal solution. We don't need a patchwork of 50 states with different standards, with different um, criteria. So that's one of the reasons why we're here in Washington, focusing on legislation that will provide this information, as well as creating an enforcement mechanism to allow consumers and shop owners to go to the Federal Trade Commission and get some enforcement to ensure that they're able to repair their vehicle. And and as second to a house, and not everyone owns a home, vehicle is the largest purchase most consumers, Mm -hmm. many consumers are going to make, or the second largest. Justin, what's going on with this Massachusetts law and what impact, if any, is it having at the federal level in terms of getting some kind of federal right to repair passed? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. Catherine absolutely nailed it on how important that MOU was 10 years ago, but that's been eroded. And really what we're talking about here is maintaining the status quo, Paul, right? We're not looking for anything new. And you're right that sometimes with policymakers that they are confused about what we're talking about because there is a great history of 
automotive right to repair, right? Currently, 70% of automotive repair is done in the aftermarket. That is a, is a success story. But with lots of things in life, you want to look at the trend line and the trend line is going the wrong way, right? That is eroding. And so getting policymakers to understand that we don't want anything new. The members of the coalition want the same things that they get now, which is access to that data so that their consumers or the car owners can get those cars fixed affordably and reliably. To your question, Paul, in Massachusetts, so like Catherine mentioned, it was passed two years ago. I, I was quoted in the Boston Globe last week saying, we have, we're reaching a sad anniversary. It's two years and they haven't implemented the law. And you mentioned the keyless entry. That is a decision by the OEs. The, uh, the state attorney general and the car companies agreed to stay the law until the lawsuit has played out. And so there is no enforcement of the law. So that was something they chose to do, like you, you suggested, Paul, I think, to confuse consumers or to take away data. Nothing in the an initiative that passed, by the way, it passed 75% to 25. Yes. More people voted for the ballot initiative than own cars in Massachusetts. So just <laughs> yes. to give you a sense of how popular it is. And so all they want to do, Paul, is have access to that vehicle information. It has nothing to do with keyless entry or with OnStar or any other of the proprietary onboard computers. This is about giving the owner of the car, like Catherine said, the second most expensive or the most expensive thing you ever purchased the ability to get that data so you can take your car where you want it to get it repaired. You can go to the dealership, you can do it the independent, or if you want to fix it yourself, that's not what I'm going to be doing, Paul. <laughs> but if you want to do it yourself, you but can. People do, yeah. yeah. Yeah, people do, but right now that choice is being eroded. Hey, Michael, you've been, you said you've been in a, you've been in the parts business for half a century. Historically, it's been a very good business to be in. Talk, if you could, just a little bit about how you've seen that, that business change in recent years and some of the dynamics, as Catherine was talking about, you know, the increased kind of use of ECUs and software within these vehicles, you know, how that's impacting folks like you. <clears throat> well, you know, when you go back to the days of the rechrome bumpers before there were stampings and other aftermarket parts that could be supplied, you didn't have the CCC, the estimating systems. You didn't have that data. You didn't have access to the, all the online facilities you do now. It's been a different business, and it was rolling really well until this patent thing came up. And when, when did that start happening with the design patents on parts, side view mirrors and bumpers and stuff like that? early 2000s and accelerated the last three years, it's gone crazy. But it's easy to do if you get a design patent. It's cheap, it gets rubber stamped, boom, it's done. But the problem with that is it's leading to terrible issues for lower and middle class income Americans. They spend 24 to 30% of their income on transportation costs. Now parts are going through the roof. Total loss rates are up. Insurance premiums are up and rising. I just saw an article just now where Geico claims they're up 19% first nine months of this year. All states up 10 plus percent, two and a half billion dollars. Hmm. And replacement parts costs are the main reason. Repair so, costs. So are you're up. saying there's a direct link between this practice of design patents and, like you said, uh, cars being declared as totaled, increased price That's of right. uh, claims. Absolutely. I'll give you an example. Um, the GM Sierra front bumper face bar in 2017 was $483. It weighed 26 pounds. 2019, $1,109, and it weighs four pounds less. Okay? <laughs> Almost the same design. All right, a Chevy Silverado rear bumper face bar, 2007 was $299, weighed 30 pounds. Now it's $858. 
Wow. It weighs 22 pounds. So the manufacturing cost of both these things I just talked to you about, because I'm a manufacturer, you can have this thing chrome plated, manufactured chrome plated, put in a box for around $145 to $169. Okay, so now GM's going to spend $2 million on tooling and a half million on design. They're going to sell a million vehicles. That's right. $2.50 a piece. Right. Plus, they get depreciated all the tooling. Right. So what are they really doing here? They're just gouging the American public. It's crazy. And since they, if you want to go on past it, they made $41.9 billion in the third quarter. Yeah. Record. Could you talk just about, for you, how does a design patent keep you from doing what you do? And this is a design patent on the actual kind of shape and contours of the part. Why does that matter? How does that affect you? When you, they build the vehicle, it has to be tested. And low speed, high speed, up to 40 mile an hour, offset tests, other tests at the government. So you can't replace that part that's been tested with anything else but that part. And if there, you can make that part, there's not a problem to make that part in the aftermarket. The problem is if, it's a, if you don't have a royalty agreement, the design patent, you're locked out for 15 years. So that's what that doing is making a tremendous competitive advantage for the OEs and none for the aftermarket. Here's what happened. And here's what's happened lately that's of concern to me. It should be a concern to Justin. GM abandoned their royalty agreements they had with uh, LKQ and another company three years ago. What they have done here, and if you're from a baseball fan, you know what a backdoor slider is. They created a backdoor monopoly. They started out, they were challenged, they acceded to a royalty payment agreement, and now they're emboldened to just shut those royalty payments down. If they get away with it, Ford will do the same thing. So will Chrysler. I predicted this six years ago. This was, that this was their plan. So, Justin, I know, you know, the stuff Michael's talking about, I know that there is a bill on Capitol Hill to specifically address this design patent issue. So if you could speak to that and also the backdoor monopoly issue as well, I would assume that might be something that the FTC is interested in. So what's going on in terms of getting the federal government, which to its credit is increasingly showing an interest in these types of anti-competitive practices, getting them involved in this in this part of the market? Yeah, thanks, Paul. And Mike is the expert, obviously been running a business for a long time, so he knows very much about this issue. Here in Washington, D.C., like you mentioned, Paul, there's a bill before the House Judiciary Committee called the SMART Act. It's a bipartisan bill, three Republicans, three Democrats, Mr. Issa of California and Ms. Lofgren of California are the two leads. And that bill basically says, if you have a design patent for an automotive vehicle, you're allowed to have that design patent for 30 months. And then after the 30th month, you can then sell those aftermarket parts. In those 30 months, you are also allowed to design the the part. You're allowed to test it. It's essentially granting a 30-month monopoly. What they're doing is they're reducing that monopoly from 15, 15 years, years yeah, to right. 30 months. And as the average life of the car on the road today is 12 years. It gets right. it, it's longer every year. But that essentially means that part cannot be reproduced for the life of the car. Not a lot of 17, 18-year-old cars out there. So that's what that bill would do. It's a very, very simple. The bill is three pages. It's a very short bill. There's not a lot to it. And like Mike said, this is a direct pushback on what the car companies are doing. And if you look at the filing of design patents on automotive parts, it's like a hockey stick, right? It basically just spikes in 06, 07, and they haven't slowed down. They, they took their, they took a page out of another playbook and they just started, like Mike said, just started design patents and they're getting rubber stamped and they'd rather sort it out on the docks 
with the uh, with the customs agents and in courts than actually trying to get those parts parts to the market. I have lots of car coalition members who are dealing with seizures and they're dealing with all sorts of things at the docks. And three years later, their parts are still there or they're broken or damaged. It, it defeats the whole purpose in having a manufactured. So you see the same thing happening with Apple replace the aftermarket screens and other parts, even Apple original parts that, that might be taken off of devices and brought into the country to go to repair shops, same thing. So Apple and TechNet will get Customs and Border Patrol to seize those shipments and say that they're pirated goods. And then it's up to the small business owner to haggle with the federal government to try and get their parts. The onus is on the manufacturer, which is the other way that our system normally works. And Paul, your point is really great on all these other design issues that you talk a lot about in your podcast, Paul, but the, the car, not phones are very expensive. You can get a new phone. You can get a new dishwasher. You can't just go out and buy a new car. Like Mike was saying, total losses, one in five, according to my insurance members, one in five accidents result in a total loss. That is staggering for the costs because they start to run the numbers and the, the parts that are replaced, the maintenance, the labor, supply chain issues, they just add it up and they say it's cheaper just to replace the vehicle or to give you your total loss check. And so that's not something the car com- the insurance companies want to do, right? They want to get your car back to you and fix it. But that's why rates are going up because they have to be able to get these cars repaired. So this is a really serious problem and it's only getting worse, like Mike said. And as we've talked about, obviously, one other big Part of this is it's a huge cost to the environment, right? Of totaling a car that is basically a functional vehicle. And Michael, you're, as you said, that's a function of just the increase in parts and service associated with these kind of parts monopolies. LKQ as a founding member of the Car Coalition, they're the world's largest auto recycler. Uh-huh. And, and they deal with this all the time. And, and they want to be able to recycle more and tear more parts apart. And some of these parts are difficult to recycle because of these VIN burning and other things they're doing, some of these other anti-competitive practices. So yeah, so the industry itself is very green in this space. One other thing that I've noted too is just, obviously we do a news roundup around repair stuff. So things bubble up through that is, you know, a lot of conflict or tension. And Michael, maybe you're the person on this around advanced driver assistance features, lane assistance, and so on that rely on a combination of software and cameras and sensors to control the vehicle's activity, which is good. Those are great features, accident prevention and so on. But it seems increasingly like they are constricting the ability of independence to do parts replacements because the manufacturers are basically saying, you can't, you have to let us do that because we're the only ones who can calibrate it. We've got the tools. They have to be calibrated very specifically or the ADS isn't going to work. Is that, am I imagining that or is that a real thing that's happening right now? That's a reality. Uh, They're trying to restrict the sale of plastic fascias because they have the ADS in them. They're trying to say you can't repair them. You can't have an aftermarket one, which is BS, because you can absolutely make the same part. Yeah. What we see in the, in our business is, uh, since we don't make those parts, we make the bumpers and rebars and all the structural safety parts, is that we're starting to see a slight trend in our parts not being available, but not uh, the numbers that we think they ought to be. Catherine, what impact is this having on the auto aftermarket? It's, it is having an impact. This is one of the things that we, full disclosure, we also represent OE suppliers, meaning the companies that make the technology that is sold to the vehicle manufacturers. In many cases, these are the same companies. They're large global tier ones who are also large global aftermarket suppliers. This is something, this technology should be able to be repaired. 
I agree with you completely. It's life-saving technology. It's critically important. will help bring down the tens of thousands of lives that are lost on our roadways each year. But at the same time, a consumer needs to be able to get that repaired, which includes calibration and recalibration. One of the things we're doing and working closely with Justin and his coalition is supporting Bobby Russia's Repair Act, which one of, one of the many things it requires is calibration and recalibration data to return those systems back to the, their original manufacturing specs, whether because it's being replaced due to an accident, whether your windshield is being replaced due to a crack, uh, due to a crack or just something's gone wrong with the sensor. If you don't have an aftermarket choice and you're driven back to your dealer as a vehicle owner, you're going to be paying significantly more for that repair in the dealer network, not to mention delays, not to mention limited bay capacity at the dealer. So it's going to, going down this road without some sort of federal action or some sort of limitations is going to make it more difficult for consumers to be able to repair their vehicles. And in turn, it will limit aftermarket companies from being able to manufacture these parts that are good replacement parts. I often get the sense that it's like the frogs in the boiling water scenario, right? Where these changes are happening slowly over time. Things are getting more expensive. It's getting harder to find service providers. You know, your car, you get in a minor accident, suddenly your car's totaled and you're like, how the hell did that happen? That wasn't a big accident. And consumers don't sent, don't see the impact of the change until long after it's happened. What reaction are you getting from lawmakers? And I guess one question for Catherine, Justin, why can't we get these bills passed when the problem seems both cute and pretty easy to grasp for lawmakers? They all own cars. They've all been to the car yeah. dealership and independent garages, so they know the deal. Yeah, it's a great question, Paul, and I want Catherine to, to back me up on this. We do, once we explain the issue a little more, Paul, Congress by nature is a reactionary body, right? They're not great at being proactive, right? They The crisis is at hand, or after the hurricane, we bring the money in, or FEMA comes in, or let's fix this tax loophole because someone has exploited it, right? So they're not great at being proactive. And so today, 50% of these cars, 60% of these cars that are today have this telematics issue in a few more years, it's going to be close to hundred percent. So we're seeing it in the newer cars, the 2022s, the 2021s, it's happening. So you talk to a staffer on the Hill, a congressional staffer, right? They're 25, they're 28. Maybe they're driving their parents' old car. So they're the ones who are getting it fixed. This is happening in newer cars. So some members haven't run into this. They do run into the, the, the collision part issue that Michael was talking about. So the data issue itself is something that, like I said at the beginning, we're trying to maintain the status quo. Or like Mike was saying, they can put the bumper on the car, but they can't get it calibrated. So now you got to take it to the dealership to get calibrated, and it's going to take three more weeks. And so these repair restrictions are happening, but they're happening slowly, and they're happening over time. And so getting Congress to sometimes pay attention can be tricky. Having said that, the Repair Act that Catherine mentioned, we have 16 co-sponsors, bipartisan, Republicans, Democrats, urban members, rural members, it is, it's an issue that's resonating, whether it's an issue of freedom about doing what you want with your own car or whether it's a cost issue, being able to fix that car. Like Catherine mentioned, it's against the law in a lot of states to drive with a cracked windshield or to drive with a broken bumper. So what are your choices? If you have limited choices, prices go up. You know what, Paul? Sometimes you don't get it fixed. So now you have an ADS sensor that's not functioning because mm-hmm. you can't afford to get it fixed or your rain sensing windshields not working properly. Those are the cost or the choices that people have to make when they're not left with with choices in the marketplace. I'll add to that. I think consumers at this point 
aren't realizing that this is an issue. Your frog in the boiling water scenario is absolutely right. One of the industries that's a little further along in the political debate than the autos is the ag equipment industry. Farmers have been complaining very loudly about John Deere. And without action, I think we're going to go down the exact same path, which is why we're having these conversations in Washington that we're having. But consumers, they're not driving it yet. They will be, I think, without some sort of congressional action over the next yeah. term of Congress. But the one, one of the concerns I have is without action by Congress sooner rather than later, we will have missed the boat and technology will have gone in such a direction that you can't put that genie back in the bottle to go down another cliched road. But because consumers aren't seeing it, your vehicles with ADOS technology, I first bought one at the end of 2016 because I believe in the technology, but a lot of consumers are not there yet or they're still going to their dealer to get those vehicles repaired so they haven't run into the challenges of having an aftermarket shop try to repair them with the exception of someone returning a vehicle or repairing a vehicle after a crash, as Mike and Justin have both mentioned. Mm -hmm. So I think as you see these vehicles get older, more prominent on the road, you will start seeing consumers realizing, hey, wait a second, I can't get this vehicle repaired. I'm going to get sent back to the dealer. That's my only option. And so I I just don't think consumers are quite there yet. They're fully aware that when they're frustrated, they drop their phone and they can't get that glass replaced. Uh, the farmers are fully aware, but just your vehicle consumers aren't yeah, quite there yet. It's coming. Partially because they do have a right to repair in, 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 mm-hmm. in, for the most part, but that's getting narrowed, right, by the technology. And you're right, they, I don't think they do realize it yet. Also, just the availability of repair. Michael, are you encountering that just in your work, this, uh, like Justin mentioned, this sort of yeah, we can do the repair, but you still have, and which is something you hear about a lot in the agricultural equipment industry. Yeah, I can do the repair, but you still have to go back to the dealer to get the code punched in, get the part synced or accepted by the vehicle. No, we're, that's not in our bellywick there. So we don't have that problem. Our parts are steel, so there's no, there's nothing that goes on with that. What I think is that Congress needs to look at, and I think that everybody needs to look at it, is the environmental impact that the total losses are causing on the country. When low- and middle-income Americans get in a collision using yeah. unnecessarily high OEM parts, it often exceeds their insurance coverage. So what are they going to do? What can, when working-class citizens cannot afford the additional repair costs, their vehicles are a total loss. Depending on the year, make, and model of the car, these funds are often insufficient funds to purchase a comparable vehicle. Again, and like I said before, that 24, 30% of a lot of the families is a transportation cost. Yeah. This threatens the mobility, their livelihood. It's an important social consideration. However, an unnecessary total loss of serviceable vehicles is an environmental consideration. Okay? Yeah. Now, according to the EPA, it takes 39,000 gallons of water to manufacture one new car. Okay? On the water... Of that water, 2,002 gallons are needed to produce four tires. So there's a lot of environmental things that go along here with totaling a car that can be repaired with the right parts, with cheaper, not cheaper parts by by any manufacturing standard, but less expensive parts because we're not trying to make a 500% profit. Right. Okay? And, And those parts are available. 
So what I'm saying is social injustice in the car parts market is an important issue, and you shouldn't have a lifetime indenture, indenture the motor companies for your parts. Yeah, you're so right. I think there is this kind of let them eat cake attitude a lot of times among sort of lawmakers and definitely the lobbyists of what's a big deal? It's under warranty. You'll just get they they don't understand, I think, intuitively how close to the edge so many families are in this country and how one a few hundred extra dollars on a car repair could be the difference between paying rent or buying food and medication or not. And I think often that's just really lost at the level of policy discussions. I don't know if you feel that way, guys, as well. Yeah, Paul, I guess what I would say to you about that is, yeah, absolutely. I think that sometimes there's, like I said, the crisis at hand, or it's sometimes hard to focus in on these on these more policy issues. I do think it's hard to pass bills in Congress. I think that's the way it was set up by our by the founders. I think they, they did make it difficult for good reasons. They want to make sure it's properly vetted. Having said that, I do want to make sure that people understand how much the car coalition and Catherine's group, how much we've accomplished. The rush bill, the repair act was introduced in February of this year. That is the first bill ever in Congress that grants car owners access to their vehicle. Yeah. Data. That was just nine months ago. President Biden tweeted out that if you own something and you should be able to get it repaired where you want, when you want, this is the president of the United States talking about a repair issue. Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, who doesn't agree about almost anything, said that getting your car fixed where you want it, how you want it is an issue of freedom and absolutely this should be worked on. So you've got the bipartisan issues. The Federal Trade Commission voted unanimously four to zero to say that there are competition concerns with OEs restricting parts and data access. So it's hard work here in Washington and I wish I had a magic wand to make everything happen quickly, but we have moved the ball significantly in the automotive space. And I'm really excited about next Congress and getting these bills down the pike. And I'd love Catherine to amplify or clean up what I missed, but it's been a busy year here in Washington, Paul. Indeed, yeah. Catherine. Yeah, and just to add to what Justin said, in addition to a busy year in Washington, we saw over 25, I think the total count is 27 states who had some sort of right to repair legislation over the last two years. I think that number is going to grow substantially as we go into the next two year term of most or one year or two year term of most state legislatures. We have momentum between what the president has done, what the FTC has done, Massachusetts voters, Maine has a referendum coming up on autos. New York state legislature passed something on electronics only. Yep. There was a Colorado bill that I don't remember exactly what it was on. Vehicles. Wheelchair right to repair. Wheelchair right to repair. Thank you. We've got momentum. And two hearings in the House of Representatives within the last six weeks. I think we're going to get a lot more people talking about this issue. In addition to the two bills that Justin and I have talked about, you've got agriculture equipment right to repair in the U.S. Congress. You've got electronics mm -hmm. right to repair. You've got a bill out there that gets that makes permanent the circumvention exemption for software for repairs. So lots of people are having lots of little conversations mm -hmm. on this. We just need to make sure that they all bring all of those conversations together and act on it. 
There's often a, I think the electronics right to repair people and the car right to repair people often stay in their corners because they don't want to muddy the water too much around the discussions. The terms are slightly different. The problems are slightly different. Is that the best way to proceed? Or Catherine, as you said, is it everybody coming together and saying, this is, we're all actually just asking for the same thing. It just applies across all these different categories of products, appliances, cars, home electronics, et cetera. We just need this overarching right. Or is it better to do it from a legislative policy standpoint piecemeal? Take care of cars, take care of personal electronics, take care of medical devices and go that way. The Car Coalition, we're really like, it's in the title, right? We're focused on automotive. I think I think all these issues have their strengths and weaknesses. And so my coalition members, insurance companies, the parts people, they want us focused on cars. I think a rising tide lifts all boats. But I think for what we work on, that's what's important to my members. And, and Congress, ultimately, they're the ones who get elected, right? They have the voting certificates. And so they're ultimately going to decide how they're going to handle this. It's not really for us to, to decide how they move these things. And again, and my members, they joined the coalition to to get us to focus on cars. So that's where we're focused on. But I think, as you mentioned, Paul, I think ultimately up to the uh, the policymakers to decide how they're going to solve this. One one issue I think with this Massachusetts thing that that, that the issues in Massachusetts and again that law that was expanded by voters in 2020 has been held up in courts for two years. Is again, you've seen Kia and Subaru basically shut off telematics features rather than comply with the law. My sense is if the judge rules in favor of the voters and the ballot measure, you might see other automakers follow suit and just say, we can't comply. It's hard. It's easy to do that when you've only got one state, right? You've only got a few million vehicle owners and uh, the automakers will just take the hit. It's harder if you've got 10 states. What do you think? I know you mentioned Maine is introducing, has introduced or is in the process of gathering signatures to introduce a ballot measure for similar law to the Massachusetts one for Maine. Are there other, do, should we expect other states to do the same? and try and get this happening at the state level, even if it doesn't happen at the federal level? Catherine, Catherine? So we really are focused on a federal solution. We don't want to see a patchwork of solutions. I know there are others within the vehicle repair industry who are looking at this state-by-state model. Uh, I can't really speak to what they're doing. We, we do work closely with them, but we're not part of their coalition. I'm going to go back to, again, we need to see a federal solution because it's it, it, what can happen in one state. And you picked up on it, Massachusetts. You're not talking the entire fleet of, what is it, 288 million vehicles on the road, yeah. something like that. It's easy on, on a state like that. It's not a state like California or New York or Texas, but it's... In some of these states, you can make the automakers can make those choices. You can't do that nationwide. And quite honestly, there's so much invested in telematics that this isn't, it's not a workable solution. The Bay Staters have got this great ballot initiative and we applaud them. And I think they are helping drive the federal narrative, but you shouldn't be able to drive across a state border to Connecticut or Rhode Island and not have access to those those same features. This cries out for a federal solution, right? The the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, I think, was ideally written for just this kind of thing, right? This is a nationwide marketplace. Automotives are, like Catherine said, there's almost 300 million. We can't go, we can't do this state by state. And so whether Massachusetts is upheld, which I hope it is, or whether it gets struck down, both answers are the same. This needs a federal solution so that all Americans, all consumers can have access to affordable repairs, again, which keeps costs low, and, uh, and gives people choices. Fight to Repair just recently reported on a story on Tesla, basically informing its customers for its Model X and Model Y vehicles that if they wanted to use the 
the trailer mode software on their car, which adjusts the performance of the car to account for the extra load trailer, that they have to use Tesla branded tow package, which includes the hitch and the software update, basically, and the wiring. So that's not part pairing exactly, but it's basically linking critical safety software to the use of an OEM part. Michael, is that something happening more going forward, a backdoor part serialization? Paul, like I said before, the OEM model is to eliminate the aftermarket parts. Only sell their parts and get the best prices, the highest prices, right. from, regardless of the cost, regardless of the impact on American people. Now, what I see is a continuance. They've patented everything, but here's one thing they don't patent on that truck. The wheels. You know why? because you can replace those wheels with another wheel. Now, these bumpers and other parts in the crash management system, you cannot replace them, okay? So they don't patent the wheels, but they patent the other parts. Again, it's just backdoor politics at the good old General Motors. Justin, thoughts on, on that? Yeah, so it was great. I read the same article you did, Paul, and uh, yeah, Tesla... Unfortunately, they're one of the worst actors in this space, right? They do have an OBD2 port, which is that little thing down by your left knee, and it gives you data, environmental data. Again, everyone knows Teslas are electric vehicles, right? So there is no environmental data to be shared in that OBD2 port. No emissions data, that's right. Yeah, no emissions data. So they're the worst actor. And I think every car company, like Mike was saying, is looking at Tesla and they're saying, oh my gosh, they control their entire vertical they control all the parts. They control all the fixing. You want a software update? You have to pay us. You put an aftermarket part on your car, I won't give you the software. So I think they look at them enviously and say, man, my car company wasn't 100 years old. That's how I would reinvent myself. That's my opinion. Yeah. And so I think they're trying to race to all be Tesla. That's their goal. The Ford F-150 Lightning, you can't, you got to order it online and then go pick it up at the dealer. The GM Hummer, right? That's not available on a lot. You got to go online and get it. They're chipping away at that traditional model. And again, it's ultimately, it's rising costs for consumers and giving them less choice. So we've seen the FTC take some action against Harley-Davidson, for example, for basically telling its customers that it had to use Harley-Davidson parts on its on its bikes. It did the same with Weber grills and so on. Is there any possibility of getting a ruling like that against some of these automakers for exactly what Michael's talking about, just forcing customers to use OEM parts instead of aftermarket parts, either directly or indirectly? The Harley-Davidson thing in the automotive industry, I think it's parallel. It's the same thing. Basically, if there's no other source for competitive parts, you're forcing a person to use your parts, even if they're not available for three weeks or even if they're exorbitantly priced. Yeah. And they're forcing you to do this. Lifetime indenture, as I said, is not to the OEMs is not part of the deal when you buy a car. You should have the choice to do whatever you want. And you should be yeah. able to shop for the best price and the best part, safe part. Justin, absent getting some of these bills passed, the Smart Act and Repair Act, is it possible we could see, get some progress just via enforcement of existing trust? Yeah, laws? like we mentioned earlier, the FTC released unanimously the Nix the Fix report, and they spent a lot of time talking about automotive parts and also restricting vehicle data as being potentially anti-competitive behavior. They've got a big thing on the FTC website saying, hey, send us, if you run into a repair restriction, send us a complaint. They want to have that data. They collect that anonymously. And so there's a big thing on their website. There's also a link to it on the Car Coalition website. You can go on there and click on it. It'll take you to the FTC website. 
you can put your complaint in. Again, that was done unanimously, bipartisan, Republicans and Democrats. Another thing to consider, Paul, is Congresswoman Schakowsky from Chicago. She is the chairwoman of the Consumer Protection Subcommittee of the jurisdiction of this legislation. She wrote a letter to the Government Accountability Office, GAO, the sort of investigative watchdog of Congress, asking her to investigate car companies' anti-competitive practices. And so we, we understand that investigation could be launching here shortly, like late fall, early winter. And that's a real serious thing, the GAO is. And that report might take a year and a half to come out, but they could uncover some more of these issues. And the government is taking a serious look at that. And, and again, as people in Washington know, the GAO is, is a widely regarded as a very serious and substantive group. And that could be a very, a very serious report when it comes out. Okay, final question. I've kept you all long enough. I know you got jobs to get back to, but this has been great. So we just had a midterm election, right? We've got a couple of things. We've got a, a lame duck session of Congress through the uh, through December, and then of course we've got a new Congress in 2023. And Catherine, as you said, 2022, we saw some real progress uh, both at the state level and at the federal level as well on some of these issues. How do you all see, and I'll let each of you answer, kind of things panning out in the next year? Do you have reason for optimism or the opposite about where things are going and what changes we might see? I think we have some reason to be optimistic built on this momentum we have. We've added successfully 16 different co-sponsors that are bipartisan to Congressman Rush's Repair Act. I think in the coming Congress, we'll continue to add more, retain the ones we have who are coming back to Washington. And add more, this is a bipartisan issue. Everyone has consumers in their district, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. You have consumers who have a need to repair those vehicles. And I think we'll just continue to build on that momentum. And I really do think we've got a real shot to see some success over the next two years. Justin. Yeah, Paul, I'm a glass half full guy. I think we've had a great year. I think that this movement is real. And I think we're going to keep building on this success. Like Catherine said, there's an election every two years. People win, people lose. This issue is bipartisan. It's nonpartisan, right? The FTC was unanimous. Like I said, President Biden, Senator Cruz, like this is all walks. New York Digital Fair Repair Act passed with yes. overwhelming majorities, bipartisan yeah. majority. Morelli from New York is a congressman now. And he, that Catherine mentioned earlier, he held a hearing about this. So I think that this is not a red or a blue issue, a city issue, a rural issue. This is an American issue, a consumer issue. And so I think that no matter who's in charge or who has a gavel, I think that members of Congress want to deal with this because their constituents are going to demand it. So yeah, so I'm optimistic, Paul, for a great 2023. Good to hear. Michael? I think the things that the automotive companies have done by abandoning, well, just one has, GM, the uh, royalty agreements that allowed us to sell those parts in the United States. Of course, we sell them in Canada, no problem. Mexico, no problem. But I think that they've taken one step too far at the end of the dock when they went to this backdoor monopoly, they're trying to pull off now. Now, I did a white paper with my daughter, who's a PhD at the San Diego State University. And in 2016, and I predicted this, and I'm getting, we're doing a new white paper now. And we're going to expand this further and look really at the backdoor monopoly and the patents and how they were functional patents were turned into design patents. You, you need to share us. that with us at Fight to Repair News. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we want to read it. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't or anything you want to say that I, I didn't give you a chance to say? 
Paul, we just appreciate you taking the time to highlight automotive. Like you said, there's a great history of right to repair and we want to keep that history going. And we just want to make sure that we get this fixed and keep the status quo before it gets eroded, before it's too late. Millions of Americans repair cars every day or make parts every day, and we can't lose those jobs and those be eroded, especially in today's economy. And so I think that's what we're here in Washington doing is fighting for this right to repair so that we can keep it going and so that Americans have consumer choice. So yeah, keep up the fight, Paul. We appreciate Thanks. you advocating for us. Michael O'Neill, Justin Recepka, uh, Catherine Bolin, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us.